Hello, welcome back to the True Crime Guys podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. How's everybody doing? All right, man. Back in the studio. Back for another freebie. Yeah, freeloader. Oh, yeah. Uh, last week was Patreon, so those of you yeah. who didn't get to hear the Missoula Mauler Wayne Nance with one of the most satisfying ends in any podcast we've ever Dude, done. maybe the most satisfying ending we've it had. It has to be. So far. So far. It has to be. This one, though, would right? give it a run for its money in a far right. in a, such a different way, but man, this is a satisfying end to this game. <laughs> <laughs> very. Yeah, very satisfying. I don't care. Well. I don't care what the documentaries say about... Uh, uh, Richard Speck's time in prison. He was not having the time of his life when he was no, on he was not. hormones. And, like that video is one of the most bizarre. Th- there's a video of this week's subject, Richard Speck in prison in his final years, and uh, yeah, he's not having fun. I'm sorry. I don't care what they say. He he can sit there and smile and say, yeah, yeah, I love getting banged by dudes and and all that. No, yeah. he he was no, he was not having a good time. That was obvious. That was obvious. Yeah. And and if you did enjoy it, why didn't you do it when you were out of prison? Exactly. He was doing you know, what he had to do to survive in there, but he was in his own form of hell, I think. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's why he was so drugged up and, you know, making his own alcohol and doing the coke and all that shit just to, just to I don't know, just to, sur- just to survive it mentally, I guess. Well, the, you know, that video, aside from, aside from all that disturbing shit, that video gave a lot of insight into how easy it is for these guys to have this life in prison. Like, yeah, yeah, Richard Speck is having kind of a rough life, but these guys who are taking advantage of him seem like they're living it up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I, I don't know. That just what it seems to me. It seems like those guys on on the other side are really not, are not being punished. I think they're kings in there. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? That's the irony of it is that he ended up being taken advantage of like the women that he, you know, had done that to. It was so creepy. It was, but it was this amazing uh, form of like you know uh karma that came back around at him is that he, Absolutely. he had to have a little bit of a taste of what he was doing well let me let me ask you this though dude do, do you think a little bit of it was him taking the responsibility and punishing himself do you no. think any of that no. could be true uh i don't know i don't know it's hard because, to get in the listen, head of this guy huh it's hard to get into the head of this guy i don't know what what was going on with him it is, but uh, I mean, why not take your own life? You know, he already yeah. tried a few times. He should. I mean, I think he could do it if he really so wanted you're saying, to. You're saying he may have uh, had remorse for what he had done, and he was he was punishing himself in a sense. Yeah, it may be like okay, the the, you know the, um, the scales are even now. Yeah, and maybe it cleared his conscience a little bit. Maybe he is having fun now. He's just. I mean, he's been in there for what? How long? Thirty years. Oh, he's, he's dead been there now. For thirty years, right? I know he's yeah. dead. He died in '96, right? Right before this footage was released. Right. Um, but I don't know, man. I don't know. Maybe he came to terms with it. And we'll talk about he, this. That's how he felt like he paid for it. Yeah, we we can have that discussion again at the end when we talk about his life in prison a little bit more at the end of the case. But uh, sure. I mean, just satisfying end to this one uh much like uh last week's patreon episode patreon.com slash true crime guys uh exclusive episode last week wayne nance the missoula mauler go check that out plus all of our other audio with 90 audio files on there whatever it is yeah and uh you know about a third of those are higher thoughts which we released a teaser last week so yeah the one that i was on yeah that's right man it's one of my favorites i thought that would be a good one you know that's that's somewhat somewhat topical, you know. I didn't want to cut you out of the mainstream. Let people hear a little bit of higher thoughts. Cut me out of my own podcast, man. Yeah, exactly. I can't do that. 
you know. <laughs> <laughs> and plus, that There's was a real fun good, one, uh, dude, with the Australian yeah. slang. Yeah, we had a blast. Yeah, that was with a that. good one. Yeah, if you guys haven't checked that, so hopefully out. you guys like that. Give Michael some feedback on that. <clears throat> All right, you ready to get into this pock faced woman hating son of a bitch? Yeah, let's do it. All right. How'd you feel after killing those ladies? Black or white, bro? Had no feelings. Bad news, I felt sorry, but no. 25 years of humiliation and abuse. You like being f***ed by men? Absolutely. Have you always liked being f***ed by men? Sure, sure. Richard's back. He's about what you would expect. He's all walking around all cool and stuff. With a born to kill tattoo and stuff. He thinks he's so much better than you. He's so much better than you. Talking about Richard Speck. Yeah, is that the same Richard Speck? Still walking around all cool and stuff. Well, now he's got boobs and stuff. And you guessed it, his panties are blue. You guessed it, his panties are blue. No Richard Speck. Talking about that Richard Speck. He's still trying to walk around all cool. But that's real hard to do when your panties are blue. That's hard to do when your panties are blue. Cause then, cause then, son, so are you. Oh, Richard's back. He's about what you would expect. He's not walking around all cool and stuff He's more like worm food and stuff The speck is dead Yeah, the speck is dead I mean, if you're talking about Richard Speck All right, our case this week for you, Free Lotus, is uh, none other than Richard Speck. I'm surprised it's been so you know it's taken so long for us to cover him. He's one of the better, bigger known names in uh, true crime. Right. I wouldn't even call him really a serial killer. He's more of a spree killer. Although he did have uh, one victim aside from or one murder victim. I mean, there's other victims of just him and as a criminal, but one other he did murder one other person other than the uh, the infamous night in Chicago with the nurses. Right. Um, so I guess you could, I don't know, would he still qualify as a serial killer at that point? Um, he, I don't know. It wasn't three separate it wasn't events. Three it was separate two events. separate events. No. So. But Jesus, it was nine people. It's like. I'd still call him a fucking serial killer. Yeah. I mean, I don't uh, know. You guys that, want to get all one, technical. I think the one night was a rage. I think it was a rage kill. It, it wasn't, it didn't remind you of Ted Bundy in Florida, the Chi Omega uh, oh sorority God. house, I think it was. Yes. I forget. I think it might have been Kyle. I don't remember what the sorority house was, but uh, yeah, very similar, right? Where he just like lashed out and just attacked a bunch of women at the same time, and, you know, that were kind of vulnerable. Right. So yeah. similar. 
It was very similar to that situation, yeah. Um, the book that I used to study for this was The Townhouse Massacre, The Unforgettable Crimes of Richard Speck by Ryan Green. We've featured books by Ryan Green before. Not my favorite true crime author, um, but you know he he's had a, this one was okay. It was a, a decent book. What sometimes, is it? He, just doesn't, um, he doesn't give enough detail, or sometimes too much. Like he goes into the mind, like he he speaks for the killer at times, oh, and no. it's it's almost not this like kind of over the top. Author again, you remember he, he was the one who did the book on the Mockingbird Hill massacre, and it was like the entire book was in like yeah. he was pretending to be the mind of the killer, right? And at times it was just kind of like man, this is like you're almost sick even speaking for this person like yeah sounds like right. you're getting off like on it almost but uh, yeah you're doing too good of a job right yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. creeping me out a little bit <laughs> well some people might like that that's why i wanted to clarify yeah. as to why some people that's might be good. like oh i'm even more interested in that book now yeah you know yeah i just yeah i'd rather let the person speak for themselves as opposed to you pretending to you know know what they were thinking at the time they were doing these heinous crimes i got you <clears throat> Uh, so Richard Benjamin Speck was born on December 6th, 1941, and if that day sounds, in, you know, kind of like t- uh, sets off something in your head, it's because yeah. it was the day before Pearl Harbor. Yes, uh, it is. He was born in Kirkwood, Kirkwood, Illinois, as we mentioned, the day before the Pearl Harbor attacks. Um, and a quote from him later, he said, the day I was born, all hell broke loose, hasn't stopped since. Um, he liked to give himself that bad boy image, you know. Yeah, it's just coincidence. Yeah, it was coincidence. Yeah, don't uh, don't it is blame kind your of... stupid personality on Pearl Harbor, you bastard. Yeah. <laughs> You're not that important, dude. That was right. a much bigger event yeah, than your back life. Off. Yeah. He uh, shared a birthday, however, with Judd Apatow and Johnny Manziel, Johnny Football. Johnny who, Football. Uh, fizzled out in the NFL. Um, much different from uh, what my 49ers are experiencing right now. It's a quick segue. <laughs> into, we have to talk about it. Here we, we have to go. talk about it. We talk about it every week, and now it's become a superstition right. line that if I don't talk about it on the podcast, it seems like they're going to lose almost. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And <laughs> you keep talking about it, and they keep winning, baby. That's right. Guys, listen. I, if you're tired of hearing the football talk, too bad, because it means a lot to Lauren. You know, he puts a lot of work yeah, into this you know, show. And the offseason's almost here, and yeah. we'll stop talking about it. But, man, my team's one win away, man. It's just, Yeah. I won't talk about it. I keep, <laughs> I can't, I have to, I, you know, everyone's like, uh, I watched the NFC championship game when they obviously won. Um, and I, afterwards everyone's looking at me, they're like, are you, aren't you like just ex- excited? But I'm like, I have to reserve it. We've been here. We were there in 2012 right. and lost, you know, from the three yard line. If we would have scored, we would have won with, you know, there's like, it, it, it was as close as you could possibly come and it was heartbreaking. So I just have to, until it's over, if we win it, I'll be probably freaking in my birthday suit running through Vegas, but <laughs> otherwise I have to reserve my excitement a little bit because <laughs> I've been a fan for 25 fucking years, dude. And I, I literally became a fan right after like the golden years, you know, the five Super Bowls. I've right. 25 years. I've never seen them win it. You so have it's suffered. just like, yeah, I have suffered, man. I've put in my time and I know the chiefs fans have suffered even more. They haven't been to a Super Bowls 50 years. I get that, you know, both teams are deserving. So right. good luck to the chiefs uh, as well. Shannon out there and Casey, we got a lot of Casey creepers. So good luck to you guys. Oh yeah. Good I hope luck, it's a good guys. game, but obviously I hope my team comes out on top. I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's, it's a good one, right? It's a great yeah. matchup. It's like, who knows what's going to happen in this I one? Know. I can't call it like the Packer game. I felt like we would beat them just matchup wise, but man, this one, who knows I know what it, the hell's going to happen. I know it won't be, but I, I wish it was just like an offensive shootout. It could be. It's just it all well kinds of be, explosive you know? plays just happening. Just the 49ers run game, just running all over them. And then, right. and then Pat Mahomes is throwing 60 yard passes. <laughs> yeah. As good as the Niners defense is, it's you, you just, you can, you can't 
defend some of the things that that Chiefs offense presents. You know, Mahomes' exactly. cannon arm, being able to throw from any angle, and then all those freaking speedsters. It's like a track race. Yep. These are the two fastest teams. They they uh, they actually looked at they broke it down to like yards per or you know speed per play or something like that, and it was within one decimal. It was like average speed per play. We were within one decimal. Number one in the league and number two in the league. So it's the two fastest teams. Speed matters. Um, yes. But yeah, that's that's enough football talk. It it, it should be a crazy matchup, um, and we'll we'll probably talk about it again next week because we'll actually are we recording on Super Bowl Sunday that morning? Uh, I don't know, man. That might we might have to record a different day. It's not. I mean, the game's not till three thirty in the afternoon, and we record early in the morning. So I don't see why not. Okay, well that's true. That's true. Wait, three thirty your time? Yeah, three thirty. Oh Pacific. yeah, that's right. Because it's always at night here. So, yeah. Yeah, it's at six thirty. Okay. Yeah, I have plenty of time. Yeah, so I'm sure you'll have to hear us talk about it one more time, and then after that, you know, it'll start to die down because it'll be the off season. So right, right, right. Then you'll have the draft in uh, in Las Vegas. <laughs> oh this year, no, so. we're not talking about the draft <laughs> on here. We want people to keep listening. Yeah. Wait for my mock draft, like Mel Kiper and uh, Todd McShay. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to uh, Richard Speck. Yeah, that's that's um, what we're doing this week. <clears throat> Yeah, so we mentioned uh, born December 6, 1941. He was born into a large religious family where all where he was the seventh of eight children. So wow, uh, but one of the babies, one of the last two babies of the of the family. I was about to say one of the last two and then his older siblings were much older, right? There was kind of a gap in between the him and then he had one more sister that was around his age and then the others she, were yeah, like it was, practically adults. Yeah, so it was him and his younger sister that were born in 1943, and they were much younger than their four older sisters and two older brothers. So he was one of two babies. Him and his younger sister were the babies, and the rest of the kids were much older, as I you think had that, mentioned. Yeah. And then, obviously, uh, your parents would be much older. I think that plays a big role. Right. In in the, think I think so? that played a big role in, in his psyche. In the way he turned around. Yeah, in his psyche, and also just um, just the discipline. And just the discipline aspect, you know, uh, the, the yeah. older you get, the more tired you get. I mean, it's just, I know kids who were like raised by their grandparents and as soon as they were able to, they went, and they went nuts. And also I think the older you get, the softer you get too. Maybe he was baby, like, he had a close, really close relationship with his father, which came, unfortunately came to an end when he was still really young. Right. Um, that, that seemed to have a, a really immense effect on him. Um, his parents were Benjamin Franklin Speck and Margaret uh, Margaret Carbo Speck, I don't know what her middle name is, um, Speck and his younger sister, as we mentioned, they were much younger than the rest of the siblings. His father worked as a packer at Western Stoneware in Monmouth and had previously worked as a farmer and logger. He was a hardworking guy, um, and he had a special relationship with young Richard. You know, his youngest son, um, I think he, he saw that Richard needed, needed, you know, kind of like special attention. Mm-hmm. He always kind of did. Right. He was just a uh, very... He he was kind of like a baby, much older than he should have been did almost. He, but did he need special attention, or was it he was like, "This is my last son. This maybe. is my That's last what I was gonna say, shot like, at it." Maybe you know his father mean? got softer as he got older. You know, yeah. you see, like my my dad seeing him with my kids, it's it's amazing. It's different. I think it's a lot different than the way I I think he treats my my grandkids a lot different than he taught treated me when I was younger. Maybe oh, he was absolutely. a little bit harder on me because he was younger himself and. Uh, but now he just appreciates every second with my kids, you know. So maybe his father being a lot older, he just knew this is the last one he was going to have and um, really had a special late. They would go fishing together, just him and Richard, even with all those kids, yeah. just him and his dad would go out, and it meant a lot to, to young Richard. Exactly. However, um, 
as close as he was, his father ended up dying in 1947 from a heart attack at the age of 53 when Richard was only six years old. And as we said, this had a tremendous effect on him, especially considering who ended up replacing him, which was a polar opposite person. Um, he would end up having just a complete douchebag of a stepfather, which uh, just put him on a path, I think. It was it was kind of nature and nurture. I think more nurture with him, actually. I don't know. What did you think after studying this? Um, yeah, I would say nurture from this point on. I feel like if his dad right. doesn't die this early, maybe if his dad makes it to his more formative years, makes it to where he's mm-hmm. a teenager, maybe or mm-hmm. into the 20s, I think we have a much, I think he's better equipped to handle that tragedy in his life. But I think yeah. the fact that his dad died so early and then replaced by a horrible like a role series, model. There's like a series of events that just made him progressively angrier. Right. A uh, young man, you know, like just that nothing was going his way in his own eyes, like his father dying. And then it just seemed like physically he was, you know, kind of picked on and tormented a little bit. He, you know, had really severe acne and had to wear glasses. He, he was supposed to wear glasses, but he refused to because he was embarrassed about it. So he was like walking around almost blind all the time. Right. <clears throat> um, and also his father had been much more lighthearted and kind of was like the fun person in the house. Um, and his mother was always very, very strict and very serious and very religious. Like his father got reprimanded by his mother at one point for going to a fish fry and having one beer. He had a beer and his, his wife, uh, Richard's mother never let him hear the end of it for that. Yeah. There was no smoking, no drinking, no, no sinning essentially. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, The fun influence of his father was gone now with his death and it was, you know, just a not fun household to be in. You know, he never, he never had a good relationship with his mom. You know what I mean? Like when he was younger, she was the disciplinarian. And then later in life, it was kind of like she was all he had, she so she him, connected right? to him. And then he had an unhealthy relationship where he put her up on this huge pedestal. It was like the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. But neither, yeah, and neither... she always also babied him too. She always like bailed him out of anything, even though she wasn't very particularly nice to him, right? Um, all of his life. But like when it came down to it, he was getting in so much trouble as a teen and as an adult. And every time he'd get arrested, she would come bail him out. And like, yeah, he, you're right. He put her, he put her up on this pedestal, right? But here's here's what I find funny. No matter which end of the spectrum he viewed his mother, he still had a negative outlook towards women. It's like that oh, yeah. that part makes me feel like maybe he's just a bad apple. Because yeah. it's like his mother went one complete way. Don't let him do anything, discipline him. I'm, I understand. Uh, first mistake is she should have been in the gray area. I get it. But I'm just saying, for him to hate women on both ends, that's just, that strikes as like a deeper issue to me. Does that make yeah. sense? Uh, there was, yeah, there was no gray area with women. It was either they were like saintly, like basically like a virgin, or they were a whore if they ever had any sex at all. Right. right. It was a very uh, almost uh, evangelical, like super religious, like look at it, like your body is a tomb, you know, or a temple. God forbid right. you have you enjoy sex at all, then you're just this whore. Exactly, and and obviously so. these point of views came from his mother. I mean, this has got to be things you're hearing from your mother. Yeah, yeah, they had to have been right. He got it somewhere, and also his his douchebag step uh, douchebag stepfather that we got it from was just like polar opposite to everything he'd been taught and raised by. And his mother is with this guy, and it's just kind of like what the yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll get into that. But however, at home when he was younger, his sis, his sisters, his older sisters, were babying him, and uh, he became kind of stuck in like this very juvenile stage following his father's death. Um, there's a story from his teacher when he's in elementary school following his father's death. Um, some other students witnessed him sitting on his teacher's lap, uh, lap, a female teacher, 
And when they asked her, you know, like, why, why is uh, Richard sitting on your lap like that? She basically said, like, Richard, you know, is being treated like a baby because he is a big baby. Essentially, he like wasn't uh, progressing uh, like the other children. You know, he was still stuck in like a, a, a baby stage for well, a while. Well, he, he reverted, though. He was doing fine, right? Yeah. And then after his dad's yeah. death, he reverted. I think that's kind of that's kind of a normal response for a lot of kids. I think a lot of kids have that response. Yeah. Because it's like they almost want to turn back the clock. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. When I was like this, he was still here. And it's mm-hmm. just, I know it sounds very basic, but I think that's... No, I, I don't know, think I that's really that. a red flag at that point. I know kids were making fun of him, and it's fun to make fun of him now because he turned out to be right. a horrible person. But right. Yeah, not no, that I, I think that is a natural response for sure. Yeah. Um, a couple of years later, Speck's religious teetotaling mother met and fell in love with a traveling insurance salesman from Texas, Carl August Rudolph Lindbergh. Um, so this Carl Lindbergh, um, whom she met on a train trip to Chicago, was a hard-drinking and peg-legged uh, with a 25-year criminal record that started with forgery and included several arrests for drunk driving and in every respect was the opposite of Richard's sober, hard-working father. So this... Dude. I could have told you that when you said he was a traveling insur- insurance salesman. When you said that, I was like, yeah, this dude is a shady character. This is he some bullshit. He fits the bill. He fits the bill for sure. Right. He's perfect. Fast talking, bullshitting, drinking, spitting, fucking peg legged douchebag. Yeah. Um, and this is who his mother falls for. After, like, he, you know, Speck had his father, like, up here, like, so high. He thought of him in the highest regard. And then her, his mother, I think he still kind of thought of in that way. And then she met this guy, and it's just like, what are you thinking? This guy is the complete opposite of everything we stand for. But uh, the smooth talking got to her, I guess. I don't know. And like you said, man, you get softer. Even religious people get softer, maybe compromise a little more. Now, not all. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying all. Some people... They really dig them roots in, but uh, um, some people get softer, man. Maybe she started to, to feel differently, or she just didn't have the energy to fight it. Yeah, or maybe she just didn't really um, know where to go after her husband, and then this guy came to her, you know, and it was just kind of like easy, like, hey, he's showing me attention, and instead right. of her having to go out and find a new man, it kind of just fell in her lap. And she got a discount on insurance. So. Right, she saved 10% right. by switching over to Lindbergh. right. She didn't even know about Geico at the time. But <laughs> she's like, oh shit. 50- if only she had known, lives could have been saved. <laughs> Geico could have saved lives. Oh, <laughs> She'd have married the little gecko. You know, Richard might have had a decent influence, uh, father, father figure, and uh, maybe he would have uh, identified as a little lizard and never would have killed any women. Wow. That's right. Could have changed everything. <laughs> so um, Speck's mother would would marry Lindbergh on May tenth, nineteen fifty, in Palo Pinto, Pinto, Palo Pinto, Texas. Sorry to the Texas people if I mispronounce your city. Uh, Richard would then be moved to Texas from Illinois with his mother and new stepfather shortly before starting the third grade. So now he's taking a a big move. Um, he suffered considerable considerable abuse at the hands of his drunken stepfather. And uh, Speck's childhood was marked by juvenile delinquency and alcohol abuse, which soon led to petty crimes. So his his stepfather, like, he was trying to take over the father figure for all these kids. And it was kind of working for the other kids, but Richard just wasn't having it. You know, he was not willing or ready to move on from his father. Like you said, I think he just kind of wanted to turn back time and go back to that. And now this douchebag's there trying to act like his dad, and he just fought it the whole way, which made it to the point where... Lindbergh 
was like, fuck this kid and started pestering him, right. pe- pecking at him and, and basically verbally abusing him all the time. Well, maybe, I mean, if all the other kids got along with him, maybe it was just because Richard wasn't receiving any favoritism from this guy. Maybe that dude yeah, was just like being fair and taking care of everybody the same and going fishing with everybody the same. And Richard was like, oh, I miss my dad. He only loved me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and Richard being young and frail was a, was a, an easy target for this this drunk douchebag to, you know, like, he, the kid's not responding. That's kind of something what you have to expect as a new stepfather. It's like the kid's not going to right away just exactly. assume you, oh, you're new, my new dad. You know, you got to ease him along, and he he was doing the opposite. He was making it worse by verbally abusing this young child. Right, know? right. Yeah, that, that there's never an excuse <clears throat> after, for that. You're right. Right. After a year in Santo, Speck moved with his mother, stepfather, and sister Carolyn to the East Dallas section of Dallas, Texas, living at 10 addresses in poor neighborhoods over the next dozen years. So now they're jumping around all these poor neighborhoods. Uh, Richard loathed his often drunk and frequently absent stepfather who psychologically abused him with insults and threats. Um, Speck, at this point, was a poor student who needed glasses for reading but refused to wear them. He struggled through Dallas public schools from 4th to 8th grade, repeating 8th grade in part because he refused to speak in class because of a lifelong fear of people um, staring at him. So, yeah, he had this... He was very uh, insecure, and he had this fear of, you know, speaking in front of any crowds or... You know, he basically just wanted to... uh, kind of disappear into the background, you know, but he was forced to uh, be at the forefront sometimes, which he just would rather flunk out of school than do right. that. Um, it didn't help that he also had severe acne as a teenager and would end up being pocked-faced forever as a result of the uh, severe acne. Man, yeah, that acne can really ruin you, man. That stuff's not treated right. I can't... Yeah, I, I had it pretty bad. It was I don't brutal. understand why it's still... In, I can't really... I don't really see any scars on your face, though. You didn't have it like his. Like no, I mean, I, there's there's levels, but I definitely had it to where it was. You didn't want to leave the house, you know. Really? But I think, oh yeah, no, I had what it did real you bad do in my it? like probably like. I tried everything proactive. I even tried. Uh, I even went to the doctor and was on medication for a bit, which, which has dried your skin out and everything else as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's sometimes there's not anything you can do other than just hope, hope that it goes away with age. With in my case, it did thankfully, and I didn't have any pock face, you know, pox in the face to. You know, kind right. of. Just, I was able to just fully move on and forget about that chapter. But you know, when I think back, yeah, it was brutal, man. Damn. Yeah, my best friend he struggled with it, and I remember, I remember his grandmother taking him to the doctor, dermatologist, almost every month. Man, he had a new medication. He's like, oh, mm-hmm. I got to put this on, and it never got any better. It just finally went away. Yeah. It just went no. away. Proactive. Uh, shout out to Proactive. Actually, did it did help, but it, you know, there's only so, it it didn't like clear it up completely, but it definitely helped. Um, if you were if you were consistent with that, yeah. So I'd imagine it's like Rogaine. You know what I mean? It's something you have to keep on using until right. it's only going to do yeah, so until much. your body changes, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Um, in in autumn of nineteen fifty seven, Richard started ninth grade at Crozier Technical High School, but failed every subject and did not return for the second semester in January nineteen fifty uh, eight, effectively dropping out just after his sixteenth birthday. Um, so he drops out of high school and never returns to school following that. He had begun drinking alcohol at age 12, and by 15, he was getting drunk almost every day. And that was the one perk to his douchebag stepfather, Lindbergh, was that he had a full cabinet of liquor, and that's when Not anymore. Richard started really experimenting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you ever do that? Like, uh, I don't know if your parents... I know your parents are religious. I don't know if they had alcohol in the house, um, but the old uh, 
deal some vodka and pour some water in the bottle type of thing. We definitely take a swig. Yeah, yeah. We I tried it uh, at a friend's house. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I did it at my parents' and some friends' houses a few times where it was. Uh, yeah, it was. You know, the 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 liquor cabinets getting a little more watered down day by day type of thing. <laughs> it was a uh, it was uh, Jack Daniels number seven first liquor I tasted. There you go. Yeah. You got to be careful with the darker liquors, though. It's kind of hard to find a, another liquid to replace it with uh, without the the color changing. Vodka's perfect for that. You just pour some water in that shit. Yeah, yeah. But a shot, I mean, you know, it's, they're not going to notice yeah. that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> Unless you didn't know, they're starting to mark a little line where the liquor is, kind of like when you, you know, you uh, mark your kid's height. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, the line's above the, the liquid oh, like, oh, all right yeah i should that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna do i'm gonna get him with that yeah you should do that you should you should know where that liquor is man or you could just lock it up you know yep yeah, that's true <laughs> that always works keep your guns and your liquor locked up people like proper to where the kids can that's get right into it. that's right <clears throat> so his first arrest would be in 1955 at age 13 for trespassing um this was followed by dozens of other arrests for misdemeanors over the next eight years uh, he adopted a bad boy image and never looked back. He even had the phrase "Born to Raise Hell" tattooed on his oh, forearm, which would help actually identify him. No later. turning back now, and huh? Get, get I him mean, caught. yeah. Hey, you're committing to that bad lifestyle, boys man. For it's life like now. Uh, when rappers get tattooed on their face. That's a full commit, man. You got to be a rapper now. You're not getting a day job. That's right. Hey, that's why a lot of them did it. That's why a lot of pe- a lot of guys know, in the NBA like, hey. did that too. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're like committing to to that to that lifestyle only. There's no go, going back to a nine to five. Yeah. There was a well, a baseball player. What was yeah, his name? Uh, he struggled with drug addiction a lot. His name was Josh. Oh, he's got a super cool story though. Like the dude was like turned down. He was like the most prom. He was like the top prospected player in the nation at one time, and then just got mm-hmm. terribly hooked on. I think it was Josh Hamilton, but he but. Uh, he got flames tattooed like from his wrist, like all the way up both arms, and he was like, "I'm only gonna play baseball with these arms." <laughs> he was so he just like quit the damn drug because he, you know, he did it, a lot of it to cover up marks and stuff, you know. I'd imagine. Yeah, but well, crazy stories, dude. Arms are chi- arms are more chill. Like you can always wear a long sleeve. You could still have a day job, but the tattoos on the face, man. Rappers are full commit to that. Yeah. Well, I think you he's know. got them like up his neck. It's like it's all the way up, up the neck. Uh, yeah, the necks. Yeah, when you when you start getting to the neck, risky. I mean, you can't wear a turtleneck every day, you know. You shouldn't wear it ever, but you, right. you certainly can't wear it every day. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't really recommend turtlenecks. Period. But <laughs> unless you're out, you know, you're out like sledding in the snow or something. Even then, dude, a get a bit, scarf but. or just put a fucking hood on. Yeah. No, to get. Yeah, dude, you're right. Dude, don't go the turtleneck route. Yeah. You don't want to be known as the turtleneck guy. <laughs> Oh, you know that guy, turtleneck guy. And then, God forbid, or there's the another guy, guy wearing a turtleneck there while you're there. It's like now you're not even, you know, uh, hipster trendy. <laughs> right, Jeez, it's just the worst. I feel like uh, soul patch and uh, turtleneck. They're both in the same category. And if you if you're rocking the soul patch and the the turtleneck, man. Yeah. What a, you got? You got to think. What about some thick frame glasses to go with it, man? Some dark frames. Now, now we're really getting drawn a picture. That'll set here. it off right there. That's your next painting. Okay. <laughs> Draw a very, very prestigious man with a soul patch, big rim glasses, and a turtleneck. Yes. Okay. I'll get right on that. Call it Flight of the Duke. <laughs> I'll get right on it. <laughs> All right. So uh, Speck would end up getting a job as a laborer for the 7-Up Bottling Company of Dallas and maintained it for almost three years from August 24th, to, uh, 1960 to July 19th, 1963. 
Um, it, during this time working as uh, a laborer for the 7-Up Bottling Company, he met a 15-year-old in 1961 named Shirley Annette Malone. Um, he was at the Texas State Fair. Um, she became pregnant after three weeks of dating him. So he was uh, he was an adult at this point, and she was 15. He was, uh, what was he, like 20 years old, something like right. that. Um, and the parents even knew about their relationship. Like, he was there, but he seemed so, as we'd mentioned, uh, he still seemed so much younger than his age just because of his mentality and everything. He'd never really fully grown to adulthood yet mm -hmm. uh, mentally. Right. And so, like, even her parents were okay with them dating at first. They thought it was kind of cute, um, except they were sneaking off to, like, an abandoned house at night and getting it on all the time. And, of course, it was a matter of time um, before she became pregnant. And when they told each other's parents, them both being religious on both ends, they pressured them. And this is, you know, the early 60s, yeah. so they were immediately pressured to get, uh, to get and married he was, he was, before. He was, like, 19, 19, 20 right here. So that's not okay. really that crazy for early 60s. 19 no, and 15, that's, that's pretty normal for that time period. That's not a, yeah, I mean, yeah, no. I was I was uh 18 and my wife was 16 when we met. So I mean, it's like really not that oh, far. Oh, yeah, 2 off. years is nothing. There's mo, right. I'd say most couples have 2 plus years between them. Like long-term couples. Yeah. Cuz it just takes guys longer to mature. That too. being said, that being said, you know, as far as the law concerns, still be careful for a couple of years until you're both 18. Agreed. No sexting or none Agreed. of that shit. Just word of advice to if any young people listening. You can still get uh, charges for um, basically child porn if you have a 16-year-old's nude pictures. Even if you're even if you're 17, you're 16, Dude, you're both 16. We've heard stories about this. Listen, you know? yeah. It's, like, uh, it's a different time now. That's right. You shouldn't even put yourself in the situation because you're just one bad breakup away and then a he said, she said argument yeah. from being fucked yeah, for life. parents... Yeah, if their parents uh, don't fuck around and they don't like you, they can yeah really screw your That's life right. Up. They may like you now, but I don't mean they're going to like you later. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. Exactly. So, yeah, they were, uh, after being pressured by their families following the pregnancy news, Shirley married Speck on January 19th, 1962. All seemed kind of peachy. She really liked him still. Um, she moved in with, with Richard, his mother, and his sister, Carolyn, and, and Carolyn's uh, husband as well. So they're all living together. Speck's mother and stepfather had separated at this point. So uh, good old douchebag Lindbergh had uh, moved off to California, started a new family, and sent a postcard with the news of uh, his new life and family in California. That was nice of so him. At least he did that. That was real. <laughs> Fucking traveling insurance. Right. Way to keep in touch. Just probably had families all over the country. <laughs> I'm telling you. Come on, Shirley. You should have known it's better. It's bullshit. It's all a scam. Right. Insurance is a scam. It, that's it, that's Exactly. It? It's the biggest scam. <laughs> um, Richard stopped using the name Richard Franklin Lindbergh at this point. He didn't want to keep that that douchebag's last name. Um, so when he got married and began using, he began using the name Richard Franklin Speck. Went back to his father's uh, name, his uh, deceased father. During the pregnancy, uh, if Shirley wasn't feeling up to having sex, this is when she learned about who the real Richard Speck was. Um, everything seemed fine, but however, one night she finally turned him down for sex when he came home late. And he essentially said, well, that's too bad, and uh, held her down and beat her up and had sex with her. And at that point, after that, she never, uh, she grew to despise him following this, and uh, their relationship was never the same. He was, as we mentioned, he had a particular outlook on women, and uh, they were either whores or they were saints. And the fact that she turned him down, he got this image that she was now a whore. I don't understand it. Yeah, at all, but uh, he probably assumed that she was cheating on him. I'm pretty sure she, 
he did at some point, right? He started getting real paranoid about yeah. that. He probably made that shit up to make himself look like the good oh, guy. Definitely. She's a cheating whore, you know, that type yeah, of thing. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> um, when Speck's daughter, Robbie Lynn, was born on July 5th, 1962, his wife did not know where Speck was. He was serving a 22-day jail sentence for disturbing the peace in McKinney, Texas, after a drunken <laughs> melee. That was a pretty common way for him to get locked up, is he would get drunk, start mouthing off and trying to fight people. Right. Sometimes he would stab them. He always had a big knife on him. He's not the type of guy you really wanted to get into it with uh, at a bar, not because he was tough by any means. I mean, he was dirty. Fist of cuffs when it comes down to it. Yeah, he fought he was dirty, so dirty, exactly. He's, he, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he bite you. He just seemed like he'd bite you, scratch you, whatever. He's a little guy, oh, yeah. you know, skinny dude. But uh, he was always packing a big knife and uh, he was not afraid to use it. So, yeah, d- don't fight people in the bar no matter how tough look they, they look. You don't really know what's going to happen and you might end up in jail. You don't want that. So Yeah, or worse. <laughs> right. Yeah, getting shanked. Um, in July 1963, Speck was caught having forged and cashed uh, having forged and cashed a coworker's check for $44, and also having burglarized a grocery store, stealing cigarettes, beer, and three dollars in cash. He went what a there out. to to he, it was just a rookie move as a as a young criminal still learning the way things go because he broke into this grocery store hoping to raid all the cash you know raid the uh, the uh, cash register. But, you know, they're not leaving a bunch of cash in their register overnight. They cash that shit out, and it goes in either the safe or whatever. Also— um, So they they had three bucks in cash in the register, and so he just grabbed, like, a pack of cigarettes, and it's like, right. fuck. Also, how much cash would, would a convenience store have in 1963? I mean, most—the average price of things is, what, like, five cents? Like, what are you—what are you getting? I mean, yeah, $3 in cash is, like, 50 bucks probably now. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> He was probably hoping for like twenty bucks in cash, which he could have like bought a house. <laughs> right, <with>. exactly. <laughs> Put a good down payment down. Yeah, I got yeah. you. <laughs> um, the twenty-one-year-old Richard was convicted of forgery and burglary and sentenced to three years in prison. So w- when he returned to work, you know, they pretty much known knew that uh, he had stolen that that uh, coworker's check. Someone saw him lift it that following that, that prior uh, Friday, right. and when it was actually cashed. Uh, you know, with his name and whatnot. They were just basically waiting for him on Monday when he came in. Um, so, yeah, he would end up getting sentenced to three years. He would be paroled after serving 16 months um, in the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas. One week after his parole on January 9th, 1965, at 2.20 a.m., uh, um, Speck was drunk and acting on an impulse and wielding a large carving knife. Uh, walking through a parking lot, he attacked a woman in the parking lot of her apartment building um, he fled, however, when the woman screamed. So he didn't really think this out. He just kind of was like walking around, pissed off, drunk. And just an opportunity arose when he saw this attractive woman walking through the parking lot. And when she got in her car, he came up to her with a knife and she just had the right impulse to just scream bloody murder. And everyone started looking out their windows of the apartment complex and everything. And he froze like he did in back in elementary school when he had to speak in front of the class and just <laughs> ran off. <laughs> even be, even being drunk, he still froze. Yeah, wow. yeah, he didn't he even didn't really, with liquid courage. He, he was, I'm guessing, he was hoping she was just gonna be so afraid of the knife that she would just freeze. And you know, we've talked about it numerous times. A lot of times, that makes you the perfect victim if you don't uh, fight back or make any sound or anything. That's what they want. You know, they want complete control. Right. And then on the other hand, throw, throw a curveball. And then out. on the other hand, Kitty Genevieve's happened, and she did the same thing, which is so crazy. That's true, but that's the one-off. That's why we covered Absolutely. that case because that was so rare. Very you know, true. The bystander effect and all that. <clears throat> um, 
So the woman screamed, he fled, the police arrived within minutes, and shortly thereafter apprehended Speck a few blocks away. He was still wandering around drunk. (laughs) They caught him. He would would end up being convicted of aggravated assault and given a 16-month sentence to run concurrently with a parole violation sentence and returned to prison in Huntsville. But however, they fucked up on this one due to an error. So he had gotten released on the prior sentence for the uh, check forgery. He had gotten released like halfway through his sentence, remember? And they didn't do the proper filing of his paperwork or whatever on that release. And so when he went back for this, they released him on the date that he was supposed to be released for the check forgery. Oh, my God. Um, I as see if he had saying. served his full sentence. Yeah. So he got out after uh, just six months um, for this aggravated assault when he should have been sent- serving 16 months. And uh, he was uh, released on July 2nd, 1965. So they, they really screwed up. Hell, yeah, they did. Um, after his release... <laughs> After his release from prison, Speck worked for three months as a driver for the Patterson Meat Company, where he had six accidents with his truck before he was finally uh, fired for failing to show up for work. <laughs> well, listen, can you listen, imagine? you can have can all you the accidents imagine? you want. This is the company, As long bro. as you show up. <laughs> That's what I just learned. That is the company to work for, dude. Holy shit. Six accidents, and then they fired him because he didn't show That's, up. <laughs> That's two accidents a month. He was there for three months. Uh, six accidents. <laughs> and they're like, you know, we just don't like your attendance record. Your driving is like, phenomenal. Listen, Richard, uh, but, uh, we can repaint the truck again, but uh, no call, no show, buddy. We can't deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> You're out of sick time. <laughs> it's like, what do you got What do you got to do to get fired from the Patterson Meat Company, man? I don't know if they still exist, but I'm going to go apply for a job. Jeez. Seriously. And then, yeah, then I'm just going to show up whenever I want. <laughs> right? I mean, the job that we work together at that I still am at, you imagine six accidents. I mean, you wouldn't make it that far. Hell you know? no. After one month, if you had three, dude, you'd be depending gone. on how your first one was, how severe it could be one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in in December 1965, uh, he moved in with twenty with a 29 year old woman, divorced woman, an ex professional wrestler wrestler who was a bartender at his favorite bar, Guinea's Lounge, and uh, she needed someone to babysit her three children. Um, in July or January 1966, she kind of used him. Um, he was infatuated with her. And uh, she was a wrestler. Basically, always wanted to hook up. I guess that's so. badass. Ex professional wrestler, right? So he always wanted to hook up with her, and uh, she finally gave him the time of day when he offered to babysit her kids. And so he would babysit her kids, and then when she got home, she would uh, throw him a bone. Right, as long as he had dinner on the table. Him. That bitch. Right. Just <laughs> <laughs> like holding him down. I picture a big old fucking. She had traps, and she's just like. <laughs> that's probably when he started taking hormones. If, if he's honest with himself. <laughs> <laughs> she comes home, dinner there's, better there's be hot, and then she takes... I wasn't making a, wasn't making a joke about <laughs> no, that lifestyle. Not. No, of course not. It's every, hey, whatever you want to do. Yeah, you, exactly. You know, everybody teach their own. That's how we mm-hmm. feel. Um, in January 1966, Speck's wife filed for divorce. That same month, Speck stabbed another man in a fight at Guinea's Lounge. Um, this one, he was charged with aggravated assault again, but a defense, this isn't what's amazing about him is the privilege that's going on here is like, how many times he should have been locked away for much longer, but he just kept giving, kept been giving breaks, you know, by either his mom kind of talking to the judge and talking him down, like he's a nice boy. And it's like, why does he keep stabbing everybody and pulling knives on women? And like, yeah, well, there's always um, a, a, a different, a different scenario. I'm sure he has a different excuse. Like in this in this, and also it's 1966, mm-hmm. don't forget about that. But, you know, he could be like, yeah. hey, that's my gal. You know, he was talking to my gal. You know, I don't know why I'm going 40s. Yeah, but it was a crime of passion yeah. there, guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she funny, huh? You ought to see how funny I am. 
you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> just, just, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, a defense attorney hired by his mother was able to get the charge reduced to disturbing the peace. Disturbing, disturbing the, peace the peace after he stabbed mm-hmm. a man in a bar. Well, he disturbed his peace, that's for sure. The peace was disturbed, yeah. for sure, but I mean, it goes, you know. Peace was so damn disturbed. That, it's pretty incredible how many times he got off with a slap on the wrist, time after time. Um, he would end up being fined $10 and jailed for three days for the uh, disturbing the peace. And, of course, he he uh, decided he just wasn't going to pay the $10 fine either. So uh, um, on March 5th, 1966, he bought a 12-year-old old car. Uh, the following evening, he burglarized a grocery store, stole 70 cartons of cigarettes, and sold them out of the trunk of his car in the grocery store's parking lot and then ad- abandoned the car. So wait, did, he, did he really like sell the the cigarettes in the same grocery store that he stole them from? That'd be gay. He's selling them to underage <laughs> like, kids, of course. You know, a little yeah, market. but I mean, you you literally stole them from that grocery store and then using their parking lot to sell them secondhand. That's that's pretty that's pretty no, ballsy. He don't give a shit. <laughs> did did you did you ever watch the Tom Green show back in the day? This just like spurred some funny. Oh my god, in my it's head. been forever. I do remember that show. Do you remember yes. that show, Tom Green show on uh, MTV, like in the nineties? Yeah, so off the wall. There was one there. Yeah, there was one bit that stands out that I still think about and laugh all the time. He he had a bit where he followed around a pizza guy, and he had like his own. He had like a plain cheese pizza. And like he'd follow the pizza guy to the to the door of the house that the the guy the pizza guy was delivering the pizza to, and then he'd start un- trying to undercut the pizza guy <laughs> to the to the customer. <laughs> He's like, uh, the customer's like, he had a whole he he literally had a tackle box filled with toppings. And he's like, whatever you want on the pizza, I got it right here. <laughs> the pizza guy actually, like, at one point, the pizza guy got so mad that he like grabbed something out of his trunk, like a, I forget it was a hammer or something, was like started chasing him around with it. <laughs> it was fucking hilarious. <laughs> Look that shit up on YouTube. It's classic. I will. I will. That's yeah. good. <clears throat> so um, back on track. The police tracked the car, traced the car to Speck, and issued a warrant for his arrest uh, for burglary on March 8th. An arrest uh, was his 42nd in Dallas, would mean another prison term, likely 10-plus years at this time. And so when he returned home, you know, he found his mom or his mom and his sister told him, uh, you need to get the hell out of here. The police are on to you, and you're going away for good this time. So on March 9th, 1966, Speck's sister, Carolyn, drove him to the Dallas bus depot where she where he caught a bus to Chicago, Illinois, uh, to meet up with another sister of his. So his family just continually is is covering for him. Yeah. This time they, they get him out of town and give him a place to go to in another city. Um, upon arriving to Chicago, his other sister, Martha Thornton, picked him up at the airport where he stayed with her and her family for a few days before returning to his boyhood hometown of Monmouth, Illinois. Um, there in Monmouth, he initially stayed with some old family friends, um, and his brother Howard, uh, who was a carpenter in Monmouth, found him a job sanding plasterboard for another Monmouth comp- a carpenter. And he was doing well, actually. He was actually his brother was praised for finding, you know, finding a guy to do such good work sanding plasterboard. I guess people didn't like to do it because it was so mindless. Right. You're just sitting there sanding boards all day, and and either people would get lazy with it, or they would want out just because they you got to do something more interesting with their day. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could see that, but he he wasn't. But he was doing quite quite. He wasn't well. bad at most of the jobs he had, at least at first. No, it was like once they started right. once just, he started drinking on the job, it seems like where it kind of started to dip. You know, he's just one of those guys where he wasn't going to do anything for very long. He needed constant excitement. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like many serial killers we've covered. Right. 
<clears throat> things were going well for a bit, um, and Speck had made his brother look good due to the fine work sanding plasterboard. However, Speck became enraged when he learned that his ex-wife had remarried two days two days after she was granted a divorce on March 16th, 1966. <laughs> this caused him to kind of lose his shit. He quit his job and moved to the Christie Hotel in downtown Monmouth on March 25th, where he spent most of his time in the downtown taverns. So he's lashing out, um, upset about uh, his ex-wife finding a new man. At the end of March, Speck and some Monmouth acquaintances at a, um, on a bar-hopping trip to Gulfport, Illinois, were detained overnight by police after Speck reportedly threatened a man in a tavern restroom with his knife. Sounds about right. That sounds like pretty much a nightly occurrence. Yeah. I'm surprised he, you know, he didn't stab this guy, at least. He only threatened him right. with a knife. Then on April 3rd, Miss Virgil Harris, a 65-year-old Monmouth divorcee, returned home at 1 a.m. to her home to find a burglar in her house brandishing a knife it was a six-foot-tall white man who was very polite and spoke very softly with a southern draw. The man blindfolded her, tied her up, raped her, ransacked her house, and stole the $2.50 she had earned babysitting that evening. Um, so this was obviously Richard Speck, and this is like his first... This is his first victim, right? Uh, first, yeah, first in, like kind of random victim. I mean, he, had, he basically he had raped his wife, you know, as we right. mentioned when she refused sex to him while she was pregnant and whatnot. So, I mean, he was no stranger to forcible sex with an unwilling participant. But this was a, you know, this was a uh, just complete random break into someone's home. And this is kind of like where the things became unlocked and he starts going on this just rampage. Um, A week later, Mary Kay Pierce, a 32-year-old barmaid at a bar called Frank's Place in downtown Monmouth, was last seen leaving the tavern at 1245 a.m. And this would be his first murder victim, we alluded to at the beginning of the story. On April 9th, she was reported missing, and on April 13, her body was found that day in an empty lo- uh, an empty hog house behind the tavern, having died from a blow to her abdomen that rip- ruptured her liver. This shit was crazy. So he was at this bar hanging out. Um, this this Mary Kay Pierce, who was the bartender, she'd been she'd been doing this forever. She knew uh, how to handle herself, um, and she had made allegedly made a joke at Richard's expense in front of several people at the bar. Uh, she then later found Richard sulking in the parking lot. See, so he went out into the parking lot, was pissed off that she'd kind of made fun of him in front of everyone. Yeah. She came out and like put her arm around him to apologize. She'd done this many times. You know, she knew how to handle patrons, drunk people, and all that. She came out and like, what's wrong, Richard? You know, I'm sorry, I made a joke about you. And the way the book described it is he just turned and landed a devastating punch to her, what ended up being her liver, and actually this supposedly killed her. He punched her in the liver, which actually damaged her liver so bad that she was right away she was like coughing blood and he then took her into the uh the hog pen that he had actually this is crazy he had built this hog pen this was like his first big job so you remember his brother got him the carpenter job sanding sanding the uh plasterboard yeah he was he was doing so well at that that the uh, the boss of that that construction company said you know what why don't we have you try side jobs or whatever in this bar that he'd been hanging out at needed a hog pen built. And so they actually hired him to build this hog pen. He did a good job. They were proud. This is like two weeks prior to this event happening. And he ended up putting his first murder victim in the hog pen that he had built, um, which didn't look good on his part as far as he became a suspect right away. He's the guy that was hanging out at the bar. He had built this hog pen and that's where she's found. Right. Yeah. Um, that's kind of, it's kind of adding up. He may have even built it with that in yeah. mind. Shit. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, it was it was probably something that it, when he when he realized that she he was going to kill her when it came to that, 
the first thing he thought of was the pin that he exactly. built, at least to store her. Even if it wasn't premeditated from, I'm going to kill someone to put her in that hog, put him in that hog pen tonight. It was like, well, there's that hog pen exactly. that I built. Exactly. When it happened. <clears throat> Speck had frequented Frank's place and the empty hog house was one of several that he had helped build in the preceding month. So Monmouth police briefly questioned him about Pierce's death when he showed up to collect his final carpentry paycheck on April 15th. They asked him to stay in town for further questioning. Uh, so he was a, a suspect, just one of many. And they said, you know, stay in town in case we have to come question you again. And they let him go. However, when police showed up at the Christie Hotel on April 19th to continue their questioning of Speck, they found that he had left the hotel for a few hours or left the hotel hours earlier and carrying his suitcases, saying it was he was going to the laundromat, but instead he had left Shocker. town. Um, so this obviously made him the main suspect because he's now ditching town. That's right. A search of his room turned up a radio and costume jewelry that Mrs. Virgil Harris had reported missing from her house, as well as items reported missing in two other local burglaries in the last Why month. Why wouldn't you take those? So the older woman that he keepsakes, probably. I mean, we've seen that. No, why? Why killers. wouldn't he take those with him when he fled the oh, hotel? I kept struggling question. with that. I'm like, that did he want them to know? He wanted them to know who he was. That's the only thing I can come. Seems like it, right? Because that obviously implemented him into several other crimes that he didn't. He could have easily just either trashed that shit or took it exactly. with him. He took it from the people's house that he burglarized in the first place for a reason because he either had value uh, either fine, yeah, you know, I, fiscally or it had v- value to him as like a keepsake. Yeah, I understand that. But, I mean, leaving the hotel, you know you're not coming back. You, I mean, throw yeah, those in the odd. suitcase, brother. Yeah, that's odd. I don't I don't know. He must have been. He wanted to, he wanted to uh, implement himself in those he had crimes. He yeah. On April 19th, 1966, Speck returned to stay at his sister Martha's apartment in the old Irving Park neighborhood of Chicago where she lived with her husband, Gene Thornton, and their two teenage daughters. That's that's something you want, right? Your crazy criminal brother, rapist, assault monger living with your young daughters. Yeah. I mean, if a, you buy it, that that's what he that's is. some real trust. Yeah, that's yeah. She she must have been buying into her younger brother being... Uh, not the animal that everyone thought he was. Martha had worked as a registered nurse in pediatrics before she was married, and her husband, Gene, worked nights as a railroad switchman. Speck told them an unbelievable story about having to leave Monmouth after refusing to sell narcotics for a crime syndicate there. So, yeah, he made up this whole bullshit story. That's what I'm saying. He's he's feeding Um, them full of shit, and their family, you mm -hmm. know, you're going to give family the benefit of the doubt if you give anybody the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Uh, Gene Thornton, the husband who had served in the U.S. Navy, thought there, thought the U.S. Merchant Marine might provide a suitable occupation for his unemployed uh, brother-in-law who was staying with him. He's probably just trying to get get him a job so he can get him the hell out oh, of his absolutely. house with his young daughters and whatnot. Nobody's more motivated than uh, the he brother-in-law. Took, <laughs> exactly. He took Speck. Yeah, he's driving him to these jobs. He's like, here, get, the, <laughs> get a fucking job. He's like paying and the he employer. Would, like, Listen, I'll kind give of, you 50 bucks if you just hire the fucking guy. <laughs> right. Get him out of my house. Uh, he, and also spec the book described like this relationship, this dichotomy between him and his brother-in-law and, and how his brother-in-law was demeaning him all the time. Speck really hated him and just felt like it was another guy that looked down on him. Right. Um, he took Speck on April 25th to the U S coast guards uh, office to apply for a letter of authority to work as an apprentice seaman. The application required being fingerprinted, photographed and having a physical examination by a physician Speck found work immediately after obtaining a letter of authority, joining a 33-member crew on a bulk or lake freight liner and on April 30th, 1966. So he gets his job as a – he's going to be working the seas. Right. 
and his first voyage on the Clarence B. Randall was brief <laughs> as he was stricken with appendicitis on May 3rd and almost died. And the, the documentary we watched, we watched it, uh, A&E documentary, and they, they uh, didn't they interview a guy that was on the ship with him that found him, and he was like on the verge of death. Yeah. Unfortunately, and he found it him. it was kind of like... Yeah, that's that's what everybody. That's the common narrative. It's like, damn, why couldn't he have just died from the appendicitis? Just, just so yeah, close. Uh, wait a little. You're out on the sea. There's an excuse, you know, to not get him back quickly. Just kind of like, oh, well, we didn't <laughs> find him. What's wrong with him? But they didn't know what he was going to be. They didn't know anything about him. So they're just trying to save this guy who's oh, dying. I know. I know. I like to think that it, I would have done the same thing. You know, we would all done the same thing. Yeah, of course. Unfortunately. Yeah. So he would end up being evacuated by the U.S. Coast Guard helicopter to St. Joseph's Hospital in Hancock, where he had an emergency appendectomy. Um, Speck, at this point, was uh, in the hospital for a few days and was eating up the attention he received from the female nurses during his stay at the hospital. There's a little foreshadowing there. Mm -hmm. Um, After he was discharged from the hospital, Speck returned to stay with his sister Martha and her family in Chicago to recuperate. And on May 20th, he rejoined the crew of the Clarence B. Randall, on which he served until June 14th when he got drunk and quarreled with one of the boat's officers and was put ashore on on June 15th. That was a matter of time. Oh, of course. I mean, you're you're stuck on a boat with uh, Richard Speck during this time. It's just a matter of time before he gets too drunk and fights somebody or finds something to stab you with. I feel like it just intensifies it, you know? Being on a boat, whatever your personality is, you're going to be a little bit more of that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah i think so Don't you, you think? can't get away there's no escape like you're stuck yeah there's no there's no alone time there's no just you time there's always people around and you're working too yeah i think that that, that should be a rule like you should never be on a boat with anyone you don't like really enjoy or trust kind of like you don't do mushrooms with a stranger you, don't, you shouldn't go on boats with strangers right, right. <laughs> you're stuck out in the fucking water with them there's no escape exactly <laughs> exactly just don't go on boats for no reason that's why i'm anti-cruise I'm, I'm anti cruise too, man. I don't want to be on a fucking ship in the middle of the ocean with a bunch yeah, of people. Yeah, I'm with Bill Burr. We should sink them. That's how we should uh, minimize the uh, the Earth's right. population. Right? Why, why do we want to go on cruises for? You're just riding around on a boat. You you could go to a hotel, and that has all that stuff, or a casino, and then you can also leave that place if you want to, and have the same yeah. experience, maybe better. Because you know you're on. And you're land. not getting the highest end food and stuff on cruise ships. They're getting the cheap shit because they got to feed so many people. Yeah, all the alcohol is probably yeah. watered down. Yeah, if you're gonna go to a, if you want to do a cruise to a certain city or whatever, because that city's cool, like just go to the city and like Uber around and go to real restaurants and whatnot. That's the yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Don't do cruises. Anyways, do cruises. All right, so you heard it here. The True Crime Guys podcast is anti cruise. <laughs> That's right. Tom Cruise as yeah. well. Fuck you, Carnival. Overrated. <laughs> All right, Speck then traveled to by train to Houghton, Michigan. Staying at the Douglas house to visit Judy Lakanimi, a 28-year-old nurse's aide going through a divorce who, whom he had befriended at the St. Joseph's Hospital. So we mentioned how he was, you know, enjoying all the attention while he was getting treated for the uh, burst appendix. Right. Um, and one of these nurses that he had met was this, uh, this Judy, this 28-year-old nurse's aide. So he actually, I guess, had gotten her number while she was there and actually went to meet up with her. And on June 27th, after Judy gave him $80 to help him until he found work, that's a lot of money back then. Holy shit. She just gave him 80 bucks. Um, Speck left again to stay with his sister Martha and her family in Chicago for the next two weeks. Um, On June 30th, now we're getting into a lot of detail on his day-to-day movements at this time because it's leading up to the big event, the, you know, the night. Exactly. The infamous night uh, in Chicago. In that right, and home. it's important to know June 30th, how this machine gets ramped up for this event. I, yeah, how this transfolds. Right. Um, 
what led to this. On June 30th, his brother-in-law, Gene, drove Speck to the National Maritime Union, the NMU hiring hall in the Jeffrey Manor neighborhood of South Deering, Chicago, to file his paperwork for a Siemens card. Now, this is important, this area, because it was one block east of a six-attached two-story brick townhouses, three of which were occupied by South Chicago Community Hospital senior student nurses and Filipino exchange registered nurses, eight of whom who lived in the easternmost townhouse townhouse at 2319 East 100th Street, just 150 feet from the NMU hiring hall. So this is an unfortunate uh, thing that happened where this hiring hall that his brother-in-law kept taking him to, I imagine he'd, he'd wander around after going to the hiring hall, waiting for his brother-in-law or whatever, and he just saw an opportunity here. He saw these townhouses with all these young nurses and kind of became infatuated with it and saw it as his, you know, this an easy target to especially the the specific build it building that was kind of away from the other yeah. ones where you could uh, commit such a crime. Right. Um, and on Friday, July eighth, nineteen sixty six, his brother in law Gene drove Speck to the NMU hiring hall yet again to pick up his Siemens card and register for a berth on a ship. Speck, uh, Speck lost out that day to a seaman with more seniority for a berth on the SS Flying Spray. Um, and returned to his sister Martha's apartment for the weekend. So he's pissed. He keeps kind of getting passed over on yet again, and he, his inferiority complex is just getting well, worse Well, I don't and think worse. he's getting passed he's getting... over. I mean, I think he's it's his reputation is preceding him is, is all this yeah. is. I mean, why would you take this this felon? And, I mean, he's also been kicked off the last ship, drunken, and especially for yeah. what he was kicked off for, you know, violence. Oh, for sure. They have records of that. Especially, maybe they don't know about his whole criminal record prior, but they definitely know the last ship he was on, he got kicked off for being a fucking belligerent right. idiot. I mean, you can join the union all you want, <clears throat> so, but they're not miracle workers. I mean, they're there for you, but I mean, damn. Yeah. He probably would only get a spot if there was no one else applying for that specific spot. Exactly. You know? exactly. They're going to pick whoever else every oh, time. Yeah. And by Monday, July 11th, Speck uh, had outstayed his welcome with his sister Martha and her family. And after packing his bags and again being driven by his brother-in-law, Gene, to the NMU hiring hall to await birth on a ship, Speck stayed that evening at Pauline's rooming house a mile, in, a mile away in the Vets Park neighborhood of South Deering, Chicago. So now he's hanging around the area of the NMU hiring hall and the area of the townhomes where all these nurses are. Um, and he's kind of got nothing to do. He's waiting to find a spot on a ship. His uh, brother-in-law and his sister are kind of done with him, um, and it kind of leads to this event. On Tuesday, July 12th, he returned to the NMU hiring hall and in mid-afternoon received an assignment on a Sinclair's oil tanker, SS Sinclair Great Lakes, a 30-minute drive away in East Chicago, Indiana. But when he arrived there, he found his spot had already been taken. Yet again, he was passed over on, and he was driven back uh, back to, by then, the end the closed NMU hiring hall. So he's taken back to the NMU hiring hall and now it's closed. Right. He's got to find something to do again. Um, he did not have enough money for a rooming house. So he dropped off his bags at six blocks East at the Manor shell filling station um, and slept in an unfinished house just off of 103rd street uh, on Wednesday, July 13th, after picking up his bags and checking in at the NMU hiring hall, angry at being sent to a non-existent excitement, uh, he talked for 30 minutes in the car with his sister, Martha, and her husband, Gene, across the street from the townhouses where those nurses lived. And it's all leading up to this event. Um, at 10.30 a.m., tired of waiting on the NMU hiring hall for a job, and with $25 his sister had given him, Speck left and walked a mile and a half east on, 100, on uh, East 100th Street to check in at the shipyard inn. 
which was a rooming house. So he's got room for the night. He spent the rest of the day drinking in a nearby tavern before accosting at knife point Ella May Hooper, a 53-year-old woman who had spent the day drinking at the same tavern as Speck. It just seemed like, well, how many drinks in before the knife comes out? Like every time. Right. It's unbelievable. It's just his go-to yeah, it's move. it's just like what he wants to do. He's looking for a reason to pull that knife out. Right. Um, Speck took her to his room at the shipyard inn, raped her, and stole her black 22 caliber Rome revolver, uh, $16 mail order Saturday night special. So <laughs> he now has a 22 caliber uh, gun, and this is uh, also going to help him in this major crime to come. After dinner at nearby Kay's pilot house, Speck returned to drink at the shipyard inn's tavern until 10.20 p.m. when he left dressed entirely in black, armed with a pocket knife, a hunting knife, and Ella May Hooper's revolver and walked a mile and a half east or a mile and a half west on East 100th Street to the Nurses Townhouse at 2319 East 100th Street, the infamous location of these these Here murders. And uh, so let's get into them. It's all led to this. Um, at 11 p.m. on July 13th, 1966, Richard Speck broke into the townhouse. It was functioning as a dormitory for several young student nurses, some of whom were Filipino. Speck raped and then killed eight young women. Uh, Gloria Davy, Patricia Matusik, uh, Nina Shamel, Pamela Wilkening, Susanna Ferris, Marianne Jordan, Merlita Gargulo, and Valentina Pezian. Um, so eight women. He would later claim that he was high on both alcohol and drugs. How he did this was uh, he held the women in the house for hours at gunpoint, methodically leading them out of one room, one by one, stabbing or strangling them to death when they were isolated, then finally raping and strangling his last victim, Gloria Davy. Um, Gloria Davy, he treated differently because she had she had kind of pissed him off. I believe that was the one who spit in his face and said that she was going to identify him in court for this. And so he kind of like held on to her, saved her for last, essentially. Um However, he made a one huge mistake in that he didn't keep a great count. He was probably hammered, and he didn't keep a great count on uh, you know every woman that was in there. He thought he had the right number, but one was able to sneak underneath the bed. Uh, one woman named Cora Amoro uh, escaped because she managed to wiggle under a bed while Speck was out of the room with one of his victims. And there, under there, she stayed during these horrific events, seeing her friends one by one get murdered. Um, he may have lost count or he may have known that there were, uh, eight women living in the townhouse, but only had been unaware that a ninth student nurse was spending the night there. So he thought he had all eight accounted for, but there was actually right. nine. Um, Amaro stayed hidden under there uh, until almost 6 AM. And when she emerged, she climbed out of the Northeast bedroom window into a large ledge screaming, they're all dead. My friends are all dead. God, you know, um, that was... and that's when, uh, all hell broke loose. You know she dealt with that, man, for the rest of her life. Oh, man, right? Imagine. She had to have had that same mentality that a lot of, like, soldiers and stuff have where it's like, why Why did oh, I live? God. You imagine just being... You know, like, seeing all of your friends get just killed. Just being huddled under that bed, just praying to whatever you believe in oh, with all you got. So scary. I mean, there's nowhere to go. Right. <sighs> yep. Just hoping you don't see him look under there and have that yep. moment. <clears throat> Um, so yeah, this, this became the biggest story in Chicago for a long time. This is just this crazy, like who would do this? You know, this monster, some monster broke into this place and killed all these promising young women. Lieutenant, uh, Emil Geese headed to the identification section of Chicago police department 
and compared and identified a smudged fingerprint that was found at the murder scene to another provided by the FBI, which belonged to Richard Speck. So they were able to, even back then, they were able to acquire a uh, fingerprint. And because he was on record for all these crimes and also uh, at, uh, as a seaman, he got uh, he uh, he got identified again. He had to put his fingerprint to get that job. So his fingerprint was all over records everywhere. Right. And when they were able to tie him to that. And then also they had a, a living witness. Yeah. Um, Sergeant Hugh Granison assisted with the comparison. And later that morning, senior examiner uh, Burton Burke had found a better fingerprint on a door at the scene. Speck's picture and description were plastered all over the newspapers as this was a crime that shook the city of Chicago. Uh, so it's just a matter of time. I mean, he now knows he has to go into hiding. And when he found, he was kind of chilling at bars and like a mile away from this, the crime scene. But when he heard in the news that there was a living witness, that's when he f- panicked and tried to Tommy get out did. of town. Well, he didn't try to get out of town, but he kind of went into hiding. He went into like the was he like staying at a homeless shelter or something? Yeah, I think I think he was actually staying on the street. Is the way that the the documentary had described it. He was just trying to blend in up until he, f- well, up until he found out that there was a living witness, and he panicked. I think he went uh, to like a, a bad part of town and like was like staying in a homeless shelter, trying to kind of blend yeah. in. Um, Two days after the murder, Speck was identified by a drifter named Claude Lunsford. Speck, Lunsford, and another man had been drinking the evening of July 15th on the fire escape of the Star Hotel at uh, 617 West Madison. And on July 16th, Lunsford recognized a sketch of the murderer in the evening paper and phoned the police at 9.30 p.m. after finding Speck in his room at the Star Hotel. The police, however, did not respond to the call, although their records showed it had been made. Um... Luckily, though, Speck then attempted suicide, and the Star Hotel desk clerk phoned in the emergency around midnight. So he was found bleeding out. He had cut his wrist, right. and before he passed away, a uh, you know a worker there found him and called the police. And once he, they just still didn't know. Like they just thought a man, you know, attempted suicide, and they took him to the hospital. It was actually a nurse in the hospital, a male nurse who pulled up his sleeve and saw the tattoo, "Born to Raise Hell," and knew right away. He said, "This is the fella." that committed those crimes. Hey, you know what? I was just thinking, um, why do you think the police didn't respond to that call? Because of the drifter making the call? Maybe he didn't have any credibility? Maybe, or maybe it was such a big story that they just had so much information coming in all the time that they just, But if it's such know. a big story, wouldn't you follow any lead, especially one that's like, hey, I you see the guy in his hotel room. Like, he's right there. Right. Probably it was probably it was the the person calling. Yeah, like you said, a drifter. They just didn't, didn't, they didn't give him any credibility clout. in their eyes. <clears throat> yeah. So the police were called by the uh, by the, the hospital who discovered that it was indeed the man that had committed those murders, um, and uh, Speck was arrested. Pre-tri- pre-trial, Speck was evaluated by multiple mental health experts and deemed competent and fit to stand trial. Should have been. Uh, his, yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. He was totally aware Absolutely. of what he was doing and how it was wrong. Um, Speck's jury trial began April 3rd, 1967 in Peora, Illinois, with a gag order on the press, so not a lot of information leaking out. In court, Speck was dramatically identified by the sole surviving student nurse, Cora Amoro. I love that part of the story, how, like, you know, they were worried, you know, like prosecutors and stuff were worried that she would be too nervous in his presence to pick him yeah. out. And not only did she point at him, but she actually stood up, walked over to him, and within like a foot pointed directly at his face and said, that's the man <laughs> that did this. Hell yeah, she'd been waiting to do that <clears throat> Beautiful. Before. I know right. she had. 
Yep. Uh, Lieutenant Geese testified regarding the fingerprints that were matched. He provided the scientific evidence that the prosecution needed for conviction, and with Amaro's testimony, placed the evidence against Speck beyond a reasonable doubt with persuaded jurors. And on April 15th, after only 49 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Speck guilty and recommended the death penalty. Good. Um, and on the day of sentencing, July uh, on June 5th, uh, he was sentenced uh, to die in the electric chair, but granted an immediate stay pending automatic appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court, which upheld its conviction and death sentence on November twenty second, nineteen sixty eight. So he's he's uh, likely going to die in the in the in the chair in Old Sparky, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, however, however, as we've seen time and time again, you know, that's handed down <sighs> and then taken away. Go. On June twenty eighth, nineteen seventy one, the Supreme Court. Uh, citing their June 3rd, 1968 decision in Witherspoon versus Illinois, upheld Speck's conviction but reversed his death sentence because more than 250 potential jurors were unconstitutionally excluded from his jury because of their contentious or religious scruples against capital punishment. The case was remanded back to the Illinois Supreme Court for sentencing. You know, a bunch of uh, red tape and all that stuff, but essentially he's, his uh, death sentence was taken away. He was sentenced to what would end up being 400 to 1200 years in prison or eight consecutive life sentences of 50 to 150 years so he's never going to get out yeah that'll do it and then uh he was denied parole in seven minutes at his first parole hearing on september 15th 1976 and at six subsequent hearings in 77 78 81 84 87 and 90 how was i mean how he anyone could ever think he was going to get out of parole after what so then what happened to him and his whole track record <laughs> so then we get to the fun stuff we talked about at the beginning. <laughs> His life in prison was quite fascinating. Um, while incarcerated at the Statesville Correctional Center at Crest Hill, Illinois, Speck was given the nickname Birdman after the film Birdman of Alcatraz because he kept a pair of sparrows that had flown into his cell as pets. And that's uh, that, that reminds me of the scene from Mindhunter. They actually featured uh, Richard Speck, and an actor played him. And uh, there was the whole scene where he had the bird and he was loving on it and everything and then they they pissed him off and he to prove a point that he didn't care about life or any or have any remorse he throws the bird into a fan killing it hmm. um yeah that was that was a pretty intense scene in that show i think they captured his essence I pretty think so well too. but i think that was i think that was honestly i i don't buy that he was this uh no feeling monster you know what i mean for lack of a better phrase to say but I feel like he was all about his image and he wanted to portray that. I feel like he did have potentially remorse. And you talked about how maybe he was punishing himself by yeah. uh, I his think that's a good possibility because why not just kill yourself? Or if you're that afraid of it, I mean, have somebody. He's got to have yeah. one or two people he trusts in tried prison. Have somebody else kill you then. I mean, if you can't do it, yeah. it's better than it's better than going through what he's going through, in my opinion. Um Right, but like I said, maybe he's punishing himself, or maybe he really does have the will to live. Maybe he's accepted it and is like, yeah. "This is my life now. It's this or nothing." Yeah. Speck customarily refused all media requests, but granted was but granted one prison interview to Bob Green in 1978, where he told Green that he had read Green's column in the Chicago Tribune. In this interview, Speck confessed to the murders for the first time publicly and said that he thought he would get out of prison between now and the year 2000. At which time he would, uh, he'd hope to open up his own grocery store business. How the hell are you gonna do that? Uh, How the hell? All right, bro. What? What in the world makes him think? Hey, you gotta have hope. You gotta have hope. You know. 
but he doesn't have any experience in that. Like, you're not even going to try to do like he had experience robbing them and selling their cigarettes in the parking lot. You're not going to like start your own fishing boat or you know maybe be a painter or a or what a a a plaster wall installer. You know what I mean? Like now it's sheetrock, but back then I guess they were doing all plaster. I mean, right? You're going to open a grocery store? What did you just pick this out of the clouds? That's bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) You gotta have you gotta have hopes and dreams, man. Uh, okay. okay, yeah, that's true. That's true. He told Green that one of his pleasures in prison was getting high. When Green asked him uh, if he compared himself to celebrity killers like John Dillinger, Speck replied, "Me? I'm not like killing. I'm not like Dillinger or anybody else. I'm freakish. No, you're not special, not. bro." No. Speck uh, said that when he killed the nurses, he had no feelings. But things uh, things had changed. I had no feelings at all that night. They said there was blood all over the place. I can't remember. It felt like nothing. I'm sorry as hell for those girls and for their families and for me. If I had to do it all over again, it would be a simple house burglary. <laughs> Specs, you just, he can't even say him, that he just wouldn't show up at all. I'd just rob that's him, that's all. <laughs> um, Specs' final thought on, for the American people was, just tell them to keep their hatred for me. I know how it keeps up their morale, and I don't, uh, and I don't know what I'd do without it. Fair enough. So, and then there's the prison video, which is so fucking bizarre. It might be the most, it's up there with the most bizarre videos I've ever seen. And that's saying a lot because I've seen some shit on the internet. But man, this prison video, you got to look it up. He is in a cell with some other men and he is, he's changed his, he's, he's obviously on some hormones because he's grown breasts. Mm -hmm. And he is their woman, essentially, in prison, and they're using him as he would use, you know, his his poor wife back in the day. They're just kind of taking him as they want him. And at one point, they ask him, like, "You got them blue panties on?" And he's like, "Yep." And they, I mean, he, it's just so creepy, man. It's very. Like, creepy. <laughs> I don't know how to. And and and, and the documentary is acting like. The, the A&E documentary we watched, they were kind of insinuating that he was enjoying this lifestyle and he was having the time of his life because he's, you know, they had this big pile of cocaine in their fucking cell. Like, what the hell kind of prison sentence right. is this? I mean, so they're, slor- they're snorting lines and he had been um, kind of given privileges in, throughout the prison by becoming like a painter and like he, he had a, kind of like free roam of the prison. So he was making, brewing his own alcohol using like raisins and Different fruits, like fermenting. Yeah, apparently them. The, he would put them in and like so, the sewer, the, like the drainage cleanouts. He would put uh, raisins and apples in jars and seal them up and put them in drainage cleanouts, like in the showers and stuff. And then they would just sit down there and ferment. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's <laughs> that's desperation right there. But hey, it's called what is it called? Prison prison brew or something like that? What they call it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I honestly feel like this is a. This is a satisfying end because I don't think he was. I think he was doing this just because he had no other choice. They were, they were making him be their bitch essentially. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's a great karmic justice, in my opinion. I, I I could see it in his eyes. He was not having a good time being being taken advantage of like that. So pretty funny, interesting. Um, and from behind the camera, um, while during this prison video, he, a prisoner asked Speck why he. So they're like kind of interviewing him on video, the prisoners that are in there with him. And they asked why he killed the nurses. He shrugged and jokingly said, it just wasn't their night. Asked how he felt about himself in the years since, he said, like I always felt, had no feeling. If you're asking me if I felt sorry, no. Yeah, well, I mean, you might as well say that now. Yeah, 
he had to put on that. Absolutely. You know, he always had to kind of put on that uh, bad boy yeah, image. What he has left of it. Uh, so that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, uh, those are the final fun years of his life, which led to his death. Um, Speck died of a heart attack at 6.05 a.m. on December 5th, 1991, one day before his 50th birthday at Silver Cross Hospital in, jo- in Jolette. Joliet, uh, he had been taken to Silver Cross after complaining of chest pains and nausea at Statesville Correctional Center. And uh, that was it. That was the end of Richard Speck. Wow. Quite a case. Another satisfying ending, man. Not as, I mean, I don't know. It's just as satisfying as Wayne Nance. Like you said earlier, it's different. Yeah, just just different. different. That's all. Uh, We can work with that. Yeah. We can work with that. All right, guys. Well, that was Richard Speck. We hope you enjoyed it. You want to get to some shout-outs? Yeah. Well, let's do some Oh My Gaia first. You want to? Oh My Gaia. Yeah. You get those shout-outs oh ready while Gaia. I'm informing people of the greatest natural deodorant company known to man. You hear me? And women, of course. I hear you. Oh My Gaia. Oh My Gaia mm-hmm. is an innovative all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural paraben and aluminum-free organic ingredients. Guys, she has tons of scents to choose from over there, from vanilla, cherry almond, uh, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, coconut, Egyptian musk, one of my favorites, uh, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, that's a great one, honeysuckle, fireside. Uh, we have our very own scent called True Crime Pine. It was made just for the true crime guys. And because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, you can get 15% off your order by using the code word CREEPER, C-R-E-E-P-E-R, the code word CREEPER, and that's at ohmygaia.com, O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com, or at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram. Thanks, guys. Try that shit. You need to. You know, and it takes... Don't... Uh, the more I use it, the more my body gets used to it, the better, the longer it lasts, I feel like. And also I feel like the less I have to use it. Does that make sense? hundred percent. Yeah. It's like your, your body. Cause I, I mean, I also, I also don't also in full honesty, I don't shower as much in the winter. I don't think anybody should. I mean, you don't sweat as much. Um, I don't think it's necessary to shower every single day and wipe and wash off all of your body's natural oils and shit, you know? So Maybe that's coming into play. I don't know. I feel like I feel like I got a good routine with uh, as far as hair and skin going on right now. I'm feeling good. All right, man. <laughs> I skip a day every now and then, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I just don't think that you should. I mean, I don't know. I guess it depends on what kind of soaps you're using too. Yeah, that's true. I don't know if you've looked well, into that. I a do. Lot. I know you're you're pretty in the know in most parts of your life. Maybe you're not in the soap category. I uh, I, I do have a sp- special soap that I use because I do jujitsu. So you have to like you have okay. to use like an intense. Like, I get defense soap. Shout out to de- defense soap. Uh, it's like super fucking active antibacterial shit to where you don't get ringworm, you don't get like all that shit. So. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you don't get infections or yeah. yeah. You can't use that shit every other all the time though because it'll dry you out real bad and stuff. So I use it only after class. That's about it. But yeah, man, uh, you should use it like before class, shouldn't you? No, you use it, oh, dude. After when you just got. A bunch of other dudes sweat all over you. It's gross. I got you. I thought it was defense. I thought you were saying like defense, you know. Right. It's better to install your defense beforehand, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, I hope the Niners play defense 
during, not after the game. <laughs> I see what you're saying. So you're going to shower while you're right. fighting. I got you. <laughs> I see what you're saying. All right, let's do some shout outs. Thank you to everyone who has gone and rated and reviewed or just gone and clicked five stars on iTunes if you don't want to write a thing. But if you do want a shout out, you got to write something or even just put some fire emojis. So I want to say thank you to Chris W31, Philly Boy 1962, said we're brilliant. R now. Uh, said true crime guys are my go-to podcast right on uh word as 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 I thought blah, 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 said love michael's intros five stars right on we love hearing that too because once in a while people shit on his intros and we need to hear all the people that love him because i think that's way more yeah okay uh yeah right. laura vep lori vep laura vep uh said must listen five stars thank you uh jbez 0901 uh frumpy 1980 said great five stars thank you uh GA Girl 31312. Love the show. Five stars. Thank you. Jez the Pez85. Love your musical intros. Five stars. Patron here. Love your shit. Right on. Thank you. Jez the Pez. Uh Bits Bistits Boo. Five stars. Fire emojis. Thank you. Uh Har- <laughs> Harley Nightrod94. Love the show. Five stars. Benny Vero. Only podcast that tries to be funny and is. Oh, that's not true. There's some funny ones out there, guys. But we do appreciate it. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Ultra Washington said, great, five stars. Thank you. Kathleen Nomad, thank you. Uh, Aylin Daw, thank you, five stars. Nelly R, please release your Dennis Nilsson episode to us freeloaders. Free no can do. Pony up the two bucks there, Nelly. Neely. Neely R. <laughs> That's right. Someday we'll probably release bucks. it if you're patient. I mean, enough. listen. Yeah, yeah, probably. Hang in there. And two more. Mala 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 malali. Mala la 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 lali. Nice. Uh said these guys rocks five stars. It's like talking true crime with my friends, right on. And Neg9 said, just want to shout out. Uh listen to you guys all the time while at work or during my commute. I appreciate the hard work. Thank you. Thank you for the five star review. Uh there's actually an, well, there's actually one more. Oh, I missed one. Uh, I'm looking here on iTunes. Okay. M.rock, five stars, and then just put fire emojis. Hell yeah. So, Thanks, M.rock. Appreciate Rock. that. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. All right, dude. That was a fun one. Back again next That's week with a freeloader on Super Bowl Sunday. Hell yeah. So be on the lookout for that. Well, you know, by the Wednesday after, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Right. All right. Check out uh, all of our social media. At True Crime Guys on Instagram, at True Crime Guys on Twitter, Facebook. We have a private Facebook group run by a couple of great creepers, Michelle K and Chris Sharp. Um, yep. Check that out. That's right. Even though I never know what's going on there because I don't have Facebook, but I, I hear it's popping. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, you know, it's for it's for true crime enthusiasts in general. Just get on there. You know, people share funny true crime memes, jokes that your your normal friends won't get. Right. You know, you can share it in there. With other quote unquote normal. Yeah. Normies. I was totally quoting. I'm sorry, you couldn't see me, yeah. but I was I was air quoting the shit out Good. of that normal. Good. Yeah. Normies are boring. So, uh, but yeah, and patreon.com, dude. Patreon.com slash true crime guys. Don't forget about yeah. that. All right, y'all. Tons of stuff. Thanks there. again. Keep creeping. See you next week. Yep. Keep creeping, guys. True crime guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you, sit down, let us talk at you, 
I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder, get murder, get murder. Talk, get you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder charming.